You are listening to the REI Central Podcast presented by Maven Realty. I'm your host, Troy Gandy, broker in charge of Maven Realty, with my co-host Dan Rivers, your eco-friendly realtor. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to all things real estate and real estate investing in the Charleston market. REI Central is a monthly real estate investing meetup presented by Maven Realty and Clear Vision Coaching. An REI Central event takes place every month right here in the Charleston area. We would love to see you at our next event. Also, please know that we are not attorneys or accountants. The contents of this show should not be considered legal or financial advice. The discussions in this show are not intended to be professional counsel. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. All right, thanks for tuning in to episode number 21 of the REI Central Podcast presented by Maven Realty. Um, I'm going out of town this coming week, so we wanted to get make sure we got you on a, a new episode out um, for your enjoyment while I'm gone. Um, and this gentleman that we've got today, we've been trying to get in for a little while. This is a topic that's um, really, really popular. Um, we get a lot of questions about it, and we've just not really touched it much. So um, we're excited to get into this. I think he's got a lot of expertise in this world, too. So I think our, our mobile home folks out there will be very um, pleased to listen to this one. Um, so we do have a couple of updates real quick. Um, Dan has a few listings we're going to go through, and then we've got some market statistics. So, um, Dan, you want to get into it? Yeah, um, right now, currently listed on James Island in the uh, Styles Point School area. It's a perfectly located home right off of Fort Johnson, right near Harborview. Uh, so you can be downtown in about less than 10 minutes. You can be Folly Beach in about 10 minutes. It's a three, two and a half, 2300 square foot, um, built in 2017. I think it's the biggest lot, if not, it's close to the biggest um, lot and backyard in this community with a pond view and a fenced in yard. It's, it's a really beautiful home, open floor plan, lots of upgrades. That's for four thirty nine five. Um, and then I know we can't go too detailed in this, but I have quite a few coming soon with myself and then uh, me and Brandon are going to be releasing some, um, a townhouse in Goose Creek, a home in Monk's Corner that's going to be renovated. Um, uh, over in Somerville, it's going to be a, a, a mobile home um, with a decent amount of land over there and then a couple other ones that will be popping up. So I'll keep you, everybody in the loop on those. And uh, Troy, you got a couple? Yeah, I got a couple. Um, we still have the school commercial thing listed. Um, we're starting to get a lot more attention on that now that things are starting to reopen. So that's been cool. And one big piece of news that just happened recently was North Charleston finally got possession back of Sproul Avenue. So Sproul is going to all be... Um, just basically completely renovated to make it more walkable, which is gonna help because this property is sitting right on Sproul. Um, and then I've got one, again, we're not really supposed to say too much, but at some point I will have one in Crowfield. So if anybody has anybody looking in Crowfield, um, I think it's a three, two, maybe three, two and a half. I helped her buy it a couple of years ago, so I can't really remember. Um, but uh, you know, if anyone has people looking in that area, I can uh, let you know when that'll be closer. It's probably gonna be like later summer before that one's available. So it's, I'm still trying to figure out how much information we can give when we talk yeah. about things like that. You could just have heard of one coming. Realtors yeah. have been very uh, creative on um, Facebook about how they're saying it. Kind of like, if this were to be available, what would you guys think, you yeah. know, type of deal. Um, hopefully that changes soon with the lawsuit going on. I hope, yeah. I hope that they make it more clear and a little more navigable. Um, so, and then Dan's got some market updates, which I'm excited to hear. Um, the market's been kind of kind of funky, um, really kind of good. We haven't really been affected too much here, but I think it might it might be a ripple effect, though, in my opinion. So yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens over the next six months or so. Uh, the MLS and CTAR just sorry CTAR just had a market update and had the Economist in that comes in usually once or twice a year, and T went over um, what's going on. And in a nutshell. Um, the market here is still hanging on pretty strong and a big factor of what the next six months are going to look like are if COVID comes back strong in the fall. Yeah. And that obviously can have a huge effect um, if we have another downturn. Now, the good things are a lot of businesses and people have adjusted. So if it does come back, maybe businesses don't have to shut down for as long. They can, they can just modify where they're at at the moment. Um, but that's going to be a factor. But so for the end of May, uh, median sales price was 288000 Last year was 285, so we're up a little bit. Average days on market were pretty close to the same, 22 this year, 23 last year. Um, and then we're down 21% in total sales from the end of May, from the last uh, end of May in 2019. 
but we're up 26% in pending. So you can see it's kind of caught itself up. I have a feeling by the end of June, we're going to be pretty close to what we did in 2019 as far as volume. Um, last three or so weeks alone, um, 490, 497, 525 under contract. And those are all records and they continue to beat each other's record. So it's, it seems to be that the market's strong. It really depends, um, again, per the economists and kind of what happened. We had talked about this on the show anyway, but it was just good to like kind of have it validated on this economic review through CTAR was that the most impacted were... I guess part of the, the blue collar working class that weren't able to adjust and work from home. And a lot of that market is like that $250,000 range sale price. So believe it or not, the, the, the median sale price has gone up this year because the people who are able to work from home and keep their employment and continue to work are more of that middle tier um, volume of salary. So that's why the home prices and a little bit higher amount have been able to continue to move. Um, and the, the, some of the first time home buyers or people who were barely is be able to afford a home have been shaken up, not to mention credit scores shifted. It used yeah. to be 580. You could buy a home. Now a lot of these programs are 620. <laughs> so a lot of those factors have made it. So the lower priced homes, first time home buyers are a little bit more scarce. Okay. Good. That's good. Well, thank you for doing that. That's always really helpful. I didn't make it to the, the mid market updates. So I'm, I'm glad you did. Um, cool. Well, let's get into our guest today. I'm excited to talk to this gentleman. Um, I don't know a whole lot about him. I know he's got um, some parks and does a lot of mobile home park stuff, so I'm going to be learning like everyone else. Um, I think Dan and our guests know each other um, fairly well. I think you guys have talked quite a bit. So today we have Ryan Drone. Um, he is a mobile home park investor, and um, you know it seems like I know he's got a closing coming up this week um, out of our market, so definitely still doing business, which is really interesting. And right now, too, it's cool to talk to these guys because mobile home parks usually require creative financing anyways, um, and I would imagine that right now maybe that's become even more, more so the case. So I'm looking forward to this. Um, Ryan, thanks for coming in, man. We really appreciate you. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Too bad we uh... – Due to the maybe social distancing thing, we can't have uh, in 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 uh, space. Um, yeah, just a little bit about myself. I got into uh, mobile home parks about five years ago. Um, like everybody, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad um, quite a long time ago. I guess at this point, I was in college when I read it. Went to school for finance. Got out of got out of college, um, 2012, 13-ish. So decent economy, right? I started college when we had the recession, so I didn't really feel it. I know my parents felt it, but I didn't. So I, I've never really gone through a huge recession from a, from a professional standpoint. Started working in finance, did that for uh, about five years, six years out of college. Um, moved cities from Cincinnati, I'm from Ohio. Uh, moved, moved to uh, Cleveland. Um, in the meantime, I kind of, kind of how I got into investing as well is, um, you know, I looked at um, starting, flipping mobile homes because it's, it's a really cheap source of capital versus all kind of other asset classes and stuff like that. So that's kind of what drew me to the business. And um, long story short, um, after, you know, working in finance and then also kind of doing some deals on, on, on the side, I got right into mobile home parks. And um, since I've been full time for two years now, so I don't have a W-2. I mean, I do still do some 1099 work, but um, I'm a full time real estate investor. That's awesome. That's great to hear. So when you were doing your, um, when you first started doing the park, like the mobile home stuff, was that pretty much all in Ohio in the Midwest area? Yeah. So, um, most of my beginnings started in Ohio. Um, I've held, I have had parks in North and South Carolina. And then, um, I've actually not owned one in Ohio. I've just work. I work with, um, so I have two arms to like my life. And I'm happy to go into that now or go into it later. Um, yeah. yeah, so basically, um, I currently serve as uh, the director of operations for Buckeye Communities. That's kind of how I got my, I guess, start on a grander scale. So they, I, I knew a couple guys, Rick and Brian, up in Ohio. Um, we had kind of looked at buying some parks together. They were buying some parks together. And then we just kind of, kind of became friends with them, um, kind of just naturally over time. Um, they had reached um, a mass where it's really hard to to, to self-manage stuff, right? Um, now, we have on-site managers, but it's still hard to, to, to do turnarounds, right, with just one or two people. So 
they kind of um, came to me. They were like, hey, we need some help. Um, and I was at that time, I was leaving my full-time job. So it was just kind of a perfect, perfect situation. Um, up until that point, I had parks under contract, but I had not really owned anything, actually. So um, I had a park under contract when I started with them. Um, and then the last two years, I bought and sold um, two parks. I've wholesaled one park. Um, I've, I still own um, my 75 space community with some partners up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then I've owned and I've operated uh, with their portfolio probably right around 500 spaces or so um, is kind of what they have. They've bought and sold some. And um, I've since moved to Charleston. I'm still doing a lot of the remote stuff. Um, but that's kind of my story in a nutshell. It's, it's um, you know, it's been a, been, a, been a whirlwind. I've been zero to 100 very fast as far as like learning systems, learn, learning processes. You know, I, I worked in finance for a large corporation, but I did not have actual real estate experience. So to this day, the only asset I've ever owned is mobile home parks. And I'm sitting in my apartment right now, which I rent. So I, I don't even own a single family house. It's, it's non-traditional. Uh, most people start small and then they scale big. I kind of went zero to 75 units on my first purchase. And I don't recommend that for everybody, but um, I had been around enough to where I kind of knew the ins and outs of the business just from my um, operational experience and just kind of being immersed in education and, and kind of, I do have a, a background in real estate from my family side kind of, but you know, that's more on the construction side of things. So. That's awesome. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I think for a lot of people that is, it's scary to just jump in like that. But for some people, I think that that is the best way to go. Cause that paralysis by analysis is so real. We see it all the time as brokers <clears throat> talking to a lot of people that have really big ambitions and maybe just overwhelm themselves. Um, I think just kind of jumping into it, it's really good. What is it that um, you think is the biggest draw for mobile homes, um, mobile home communities, trailer parks, whatever you want to call it, um, as opposed to like apartments or single families? What is it that, that got you so interested in those? Yeah, so what got me interested initially was the, the pure economics and the numbers. Um, I spent a lot of time analyzing a lot of other asset classes. I looked at buying other businesses too, right? So I looked at buying laundromats, car washes. Um, I looked at buying um, apartments, small duplexes. I looked at um, larger apartments. And, you know, the, the, uh, the larger apartments, I didn't really understand too much, but um, kind of got a better grasp on it now. Still not my, my, my niche. Um, kind of stumbled onto mobile home parks by kind of uh, just luck. Um, was looking at flipping a mobile home, um, do, doing like a live-in flip in like a nicer community up in Ohio. Wasn't a 55 and older, but I was by far going to be the youngest tenant in there. Yeah. Um, and it was probably, I think we were, I was looking at like 15000 all in, like purchase price. And then my dad's a contractor, so I had free labor for the most part. So my materials, it, you know, my cost was down relative to the others. I didn't end up going through with it. I couldn't make the numbers pen out as well. And then I just kind of stumbled on um, like who owns these things. Started going down that rabbit hole. Um, five years ago, the draw was, you know, the numbers, right? You know, you can buy at a 10 cap. You're getting immediately, um, you know, 17 to 20% cash on cash returns. And you have probably, you know, the value add is just raise lot rents and, and maybe, you know, infill some homes and fix up some stuff and, and make more professional management right, and make it look a little nicer. Take it from mom and pop and bring it to a professional level. Um, that was five years ago, and speed it up to today. I mean, we're, we have a lot of money flowing into the, into the industry because another draw is it's very fragmented, right? So um, there's about realistically investable, probably 40 to 50,000 mobile home parks. When I say investable, maybe five units and above. When you go into 50 units and above, it drops significantly. So there's a limited supply, right? So the demand is huge in most areas for affordable housing. So Economics 101 teaches you if you have a product that's got low supply and high demand, you're always going to have a customer. So I always have customers in good areas. So that's that's a real huge draw. And there's there's a moat kind of like what Warren Buffett talks about as far as like, you know, they're not building any more of these things. And the, and the zoning kind of thinking of not in my own backyard type zoning, there's more destroyed every year than there are built. So unless that changes, it's you're going to have an asset class that is still getting good yield relative to 
the other asset classes with um, limited downside because you're because the 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 homeowners right have are normally um, they're on fixed incomes they work at McDonald's they work lower end jobs where they're making less than the household income normally forty thousand or less so they don't normally have five to seven thousand dollars to pick up and move their mobile home which is what it costs on average depending on where you're on in the country so we have a very insulated product um, from our resident standpoint versus apartments they can just pack their shit and leave I mean they can still do that but I still have that sitting there and I normally can work out a deal with them you know it's it's like a used car I say hey I'll give you a thousand bucks sign over the title to me they're on their way and I can turn that in 30 days and sell so that's what I was going to ask you as far as like your mobile homes it sounds like maybe I'm wrong sounds like a lot of these are just lot rents but do you try do you own a lot of the mobile homes as well or do you try not to do you try to sell them back to the clients if you do like so normally we my business model um, and what I found appropriate for my lifestyle is um, just lot renters. So I don't want to own any of the homes. Now, nowadays it comes with owning homes. It's just part of the territory nowadays. But depending on what market you're in, it's very market driven, right? Some 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 markets are more renter heavy. Um, America as a whole is more of a renter nation, but we can still sell mobile homes in most areas. Um, we do um, we do lease options with purchase. I'm not. Uh, this is not. Uh, legal advice by any means and it varies by state because with the safe act there's all kinds of different things get a, get a recommended attorney or go talk to them um, we do some some creative things where you know we might do some like rent to own rent credit um, to finance them for people or you know if I have a renter that's been there for a year or two when I bought the park I, I normally will go to them and say hey your rent's going up or you know if you want to make a lower payment, um, I'm happy to gift you the home for $500 or just gift you the home. Some of the homes I don't want. So I, in, in certain scenarios, if, they, if, if they've been there for a year or more, I've gifted them the home for basically like a dollar. So, and because I know they're, they're not going anywhere. They've been good residents. They don't complain. And I don't have that, that maintenance headache and that maintenance expense. And it's a management nightmare in my opinion. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm after the dirt. That's exactly That's really interesting. I get a lot of um, people that, that are interested in parks um, and I'll, I'll have a lot of them say, I, I only want like lot rent only. I don't want to own any homes. I'm like that, that's fine if that's your parameter, but we're going to be buying retail pricing at that point because that's usually the strategy for the exit. You know, it's usually kind of the end game is you, you, you almost always are going to inherit homes because they're yeah. not easy to deal with in most cases. There's a lot of DMV stuff involved their age problems, especially on the coast. We have a lot of hurricane issues and stuff like that. So wind ratings and stuff. There's a lot of minute details like that, that um, I think that's kind of the, one of the limiting factors for entry for a lot of investors is they might not know some of those little nuances in there, um, which I certainly don't know them all. I'm aware there are some issues, but I don't know them all. So what, um, what markets do you like? You know, like it, like I said a minute ago, I think there's. I've heard that kind of 95 is a good like boundary. Like if you're on the east side of 95, you're normally going to have to adhere to like higher wind ratings and things like that. If you're more inland, um, you know, you don't have as many issues with that. And then maybe maybe some of the DMV stuff. If you want to like give a quick rundown on like the the vehicular property versus real property and all that stuff. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, are you? like the areas I'm in or yeah. the areas I focus on. Yeah. So the areas I currently focus on, um, are South Carolina, North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, um, Ohio, Michigan, and parts of West Virginia. We're primarily in, um, markets where we're searching for 50,000 and above metros where there's good medium income. There's good amount of jobs, right? Government jobs, healthcare jobs, educational jobs, not just a one horse town employer. I'm not after that. Um, maybe there's an army base like I own in Fayetteville, which is, you know, it's a hit or miss market depending on where you are. Um, but we're after affordable housing price, like of a hundred thousand or more. Right. So I'm, I'm like, um, like one of our local investors, um, Tim Bratz kind of says he buys the ugliest house in the best neighborhood. We're doing the same thing with mobile home parks. We really are um, trying to buy good school districts, lots of, so if there's a, where we live, if there's a, if there's a mobile home park for sale, in Mount Pleasant, you know, great location in Charleston. I, I want to buy it. If it's like everything's falling apart and they got a bunch of crackheads in there, I want that because it's a good area. 
and I'll take it all day. If it's in the hood, it's in a, if it's in a bad area where maybe I, I can't go at night, I don't want it. That's just not, um, I, you can't change location. So that's kind of what we're after as far as location goes. We're normally 40 units and above. Um, and we'll, we'll buy stabilized stuff. I'm not afraid of stabilized stuff as long as we can get good debt on it. Um, and then as far as like the, the actual real property versus personal property, kind of like what um, Troy was hinting on. Um, so the mobile homes themselves are, are deemed in every state personal property. So just like your car that you drive, that's personal property. So personal property basically means that it has wheels and it can be moved. That's a very limiting belief because these manufactured housing mobile homes are, you're not just going to take like an F-150 and, and, or my so, or like a truck and just move it. It's just not going to happen. Maybe a really, really old unit that's tiny. You can maybe do that, but you need a, you need a commercial license. You need permits. You need all kinds of things from the department of transportation to move a home. And it costs, like I talked about earlier, on average, five to seven thousand dollars to move and properly set it and, and get all of the permits and inspections done, um, which a lot of our residents can't afford. So um, the personal property, sometimes we, we buy homes or we buy uh, parks that have title issues, right? Because they don't have a clean sheet of paper. Actually, I mean, I can probably show a title if I, if I dug it up, if I have one over there. But, um, you know, it, you got to be able to find the, the title. If I, I can't sell something, I don't own. So that's a that's the number one headache for me aside from residents, um, is finding titles, going through abandonment title process, and then working with the DMV, the local tax authorities, because um, nothing against government employees, but the DMV, I think everybody knows, um, nobody wants to deal with. Yeah. And in some states, we can, pay, we can pay attorneys to deal with it, which I'm happy to do, because there's a bunch of paperwork and a bunch of stuff. But there's also some other companies out there, like, um, I don't endorse them. I don't get paid from them. Um, it's Snickfish. They're a mobile home slash personal property. They deal with titles. Um, we've tried to use them, but in certain states, the laws are a little different with what you have to do. So um, like right now, I'm working through some abandonment and title issues in North Carolina, which is a state that's a little bit more difficult, in my opinion, because you have to like, there's a whole list of stuff you have to do. And it's just, you just want to bang. I just want to bang my head against this desk even thinking about it. So. Um, and, and it's not something you can really, because some attorneys don't want to do it because you can only pay them like 200 bucks and they don't care. So, because they'd rather go chase ambulance or do some eviction because it's cleaner, it's easier. It's not as much as a headache. Sure. But Ryan, you were mentioning before, um, I kind of want to go back to something that you were talking about how mobile home parks, you know, there's a limited number of them. And not only that, there's a lot of zoning restrictions going on. So some of the parks that are existing are, are going away because they're not allowed to. A lot of times I know in like North Charleston, Hanahan area, um, probably other surrounding areas, whereas if a mobile home is non-repairable, you can't replace it. You got to pull it and get rid of it. So my question to you, based on that is, do you, when you go into purchasing one or what you have now, do you guys have an exit strategy? God forbid that mobile home park is not going to be allowable anymore. And, and kind of what else can you make use of that property? Yeah. So we do that ahead of time in our due diligence and in the inspection period, I call, I mean, I, this thing right here, I like, it's like this thick, it's a due diligence manual that it's, I have it on, I mean, I have it all on my computer and, and everything, but that's like a good start. We go through all the zoning. I talk with everybody that I can to figure out the zoning and, and what's going to be changed. Normally it's, uh, what are the two? It's grandfathered, which is legal non-conforming or it's conforming, right? So uh, in, in most instances on parks I've bought, they're legal non-conforming. If, if it's in city limits, it changes it dramatically than if it's not in city limits, right? Because city limits, they, they like to kind of push on you a little bit, but you just got to kind of know what you can and cannot do. So, um, yeah, I mean, they can't just change your zoning, right? That just doesn't, I mean, I guess they can, but if you're legal non-conforming, you have plenty of rights in, in most situations where you can replace a mobile home. Some cities will say it's not allowed, but it's technically, um, I can't remember the case, but I think they tested in the Supreme Court of Mississippi or Missouri, where um, you, as long as it's not been, some, they, some, some cities have like sunset provisions or other statutes if it hasn't been a, a, a lot for 10, 15 years, then you can't use it. Maybe in that circum, certain situations you can't use it, but most of the time we can fill lots and we don't have a problem doing so. Um, but we do all of that ahead of time, right? What's the process to bring in a home? Who do I have to talk to? What's the, what's the setback requirements? Um, is the fire marshal gonna be a problem? Because a lot of times 
on the old tiger parks, like some in North Charleston, they're really close, right? So if, if I can reach out and touch my neighbor, most of the time the fire marshal will say you can't bring in new homes, they have to stay because it's a fire hazard. So that is actually something where they can get you on. Um, I have not had a problem with that, but you know, I do know that exists. So to answer your question, it's it's a it's a long-winded answer to be honest, and there's not a um, exact yes or no. Yeah. So because it, it changes where you made a couple of really good points in there. Um, NIMBY for sure is a big issue with this because I'm I'm in Park Circle, which there used to be a lot of mobile home parks in this area. Even like a half a mile from here, there was a a, a couple of pretty big parks. And our, our local government doesn't want them because there's been so many people moving here. The popularity of this neighborhood's increased so much. But mm -hmm. where those parks are and were are now being replaced with half a million dollar homes. And most of them are looking directly down at these parks. So it's a catch 22 though, because this area is typically where the workforce housing was. Mm -hmm. So affordable housing is a huge issue for our government. They're pushing these home, these parks out but there goes our affordable housing too, for the most part. So it's, it's really difficult like, to provide affordable housing. Mobile homes are safe and they're convenient. They're really good houses, especially if you make them a community. So it's really challenging you know, to, to see them go. Uh, it's just a really weird, strange circumstance. So, so what also, uh, to Dan's question, they're not zoning any more mobile home parks that allow you to build them. So that is a key point that um, maybe I didn't answer that, um, you know, you're not going to get zoning for mobile home parks. And that's the not in my backyard type of thinking, right? Where you don't like, to be honest, I don't want a mobile home, even though I know all the pros and cons of investing in them. I don't want to park next to me. I mean, that's, that's the sad reality of it. And unless something changes through this country or we start getting a little bit more um, into affordable housing, because I'm in the non-subsidized housing, right? Like I don't do Section 8, I don't do any government housing, so we're in non-subsidized. So if, unless that changes in the non-subsidized type of industry or, or whatever you wanna call it from the government, um, it's not gonna get any better. So to your point, the, the land is actually probably, has become more valuable, right? So I don't know if the, the city might not be forcing people out. Most of the time developers just come in and they, and they buy it because the land's worth more than you would ever sell it for for mobile home parks and that's why i haven't done a transaction down here in uh charleston because it's hard to find a park where they don't value the land more and while i understand that i'm not a i'm not a land buyer i'm not an appreciation buyer right i'm i'm a, i'm buying on the cash flow so regardless yeah. of that land is maybe worth two million and i'm paying one and a half i'm not paying for that because i'm not redeveloping so. yeah that's i have a, I have a family, family member owns a park pretty near park circle and she'd like to sell it. And I think she would sell it to me for a discount, but the homes are almost all of them are over 30 years old. They're really close together. They're in a, a way tucked back in an area where bringing new homes in there would be really, really difficult. So I like, I'd love to get it and figure out a way to do it, but I really don't think that it's that feasible. And if that neighborhood's not improved to a point where you, you could, get it for the land value. You couldn't really do a whole lot with the land over there at, at this time. What, I know there's a lot of age issues too with these homes. Could you real quick talk about like when they get to a certain age, kind of what, like the useful age of them and then what happens when they get to be a certain age? It, it depends. So it's just like a classic car. I mean, I'm not comparing the two. Classic cars are way cooler than mobile homes, but um, <laughs> they, they, it just depends on how well they're taken care of. So if there's water damage or, um, you know, if there's heavy extreme use and there's cheap fixes, it's going to look like just like shit in like, you know, 50 years. Right. So I, we bought, we actually bought a park in Cleveland recently and it has, it used to be the original, uh, like trailer courts, right? So mobile home, the industry basically started as uh, rich people had nice cars where they had big engines and they could haul across country RVs, campers, whatever you want to call them, back in the day. And they would be called trailer ports because you'd pull in, park your car, and then go sleep in the back, right? So they were smaller lots. Um, and we, it, it, this park is from the 1940s. So we actually have a old Lucille Ball trailer where the guy converted it, but it's from the 40s. So it just, I mean, and the park is, you know, it's been mismanaged. It's kind of just been 
owner got old, she got tired of it. I mean, you know, that's, that's how it happens, right? You lose interest and, and, and stuff. So, you know, the homes in there are pretty old, but we're, but they've been well-maintained and you'd be surprised as long as there's no water damage, it's no different than a single family house. Um, it's just wood and, and maybe some drywall or some other, uh, what's it called? Um, like paneling is yeah. popular. Yeah. So, I mean, everything can be fixed and, and, and the problem is when you're buying those older homes, they're normally 10 by 40s, 10 by 50s. It's the size. So you can't replace it with a modern home. So that's a problem that a lot of investors getting into the space don't realize is you can't just, because of setbacks and, and all the other requirements, you can't just bring in a nice new 16 by 80 home and, and replace that 10 by 40 lot. So does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, as long as there's no water damage and there's it's been taken care of decently, you can pretty much fix it with, with, uh, within reason. So, so Ryan, uh, Troy touched upon this a little bit in his opening uh, introduction of you, and I think this is such an important um, topic on mobile homes that a lot of people, who especially people who want to start investing in mobile homes, it's that it's that sexy animal right now, um, mm -hmm. as we talked about financing. What what are some of the options? What, what do you prefer? Um, any unique style financing you guys have done in the past? Yeah, so my preference is non-recourse, number one, or if somebody wants to gift me the park, that's, number, that's not really financing. <laughs> seller financing, um, seller financing, if it's um, decent terms, right? Because seller financing can sometimes be a trap, right? Interest only, 8%, when the real market is 3%, but it might be non-recourse. Um, seller financing is always a preference because that doesn't show on my... Um, I guess when I go to a bank, it doesn't show as my overall debt and my personal, you know, balance sheet. Um, and then if we can get nice agency debt like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on the park with non-recourse 10-year fix, that's my second preference. And my third preference is just to work with a local credit union or bank and, and kind of get their term. But we've, we've, we well, I've paid, we've paid cash before, um, not my preference, but, you know, if we can, if that is the, if we have to, and then we can refinance relatively quickly. Um, our preference is long-term fixed debt, non-recourse. So. What kind of terms are you getting from those institutional lenders? Because I've had a lot of people have just have the worst time. They can't find the lenders that do it. And then some of them will only want to do like what the land is worth. Um, they don't care sometimes about the income, which is really odd. Yeah, so it depends on the size, right? So um, tradition, larger is always easier to get financed and sell. Um, so, you know, we're, if you're, over two million dollars on the debt side, Fannie will give you pretty good terms. It's really it's come down. It's one and a half now. But yeah, I mean we've gotten quoted at like three and a half percent before, or whatever the going rate is, and ten year fixed. Um, but like local credit unions, I had a twenty unit deal where, but it had eight apartments, so that was a big catch twenty two with that. Where they quoted, um, not here, it was in Cincinnati. They quoted me at four percent, seven year fixed, twenty five year amortization. So. You just, you got to get a list. You got to start calling. And it's just like anything, right? Banks are, need to work for your business, not working for their business. You don't need to be desperate when talking with bankers. And when you are, they, you can say, well, it's just like your shopping rates, right? So so-and-so bank down the street's giving me X, Y, Z on this term sheet. What can you do? Because they'll, they'll, if you talk to the right person, they can, they can move, maybe not the rate, but they can move the term. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's good to know. I didn't, I knew I know Fannie will do agency debt on those, but I haven't really had conversations on that. That's really good to know because that's a, a hell of a loan. Yeah, on the smaller transactions, they it's got to be a million and a half and above. If you're looking to buy small parks, seller financing is always number one. Uh, two is is local, you know, local banks. So just like anything, you got to start talking with bankers ahead of time, um, and you got to. I mean, if you don't have a personal balance sheet, you got to find somebody to be a sponsor, and that's. That can be done. I mean, I've done it before, you know, um, and that's just mobile home parks are becoming easier to finance. The smaller transactions are always going to be hard. They're like that in multifamily as well. Yeah, so. absolutely. It is, it is a lot more difficult. They like that larger asset. Um, so I have a question. We touched on it a little while ago that when you turn over a, a home, it's pretty different than turning over like a single family. Like you were saying a little while ago, it's a lot of paneling. There's a lot of like just more non-conforming specialized materials. What's it like turning over a mobile home? So I just in full dis disclosure, I don't swing hammers. So to be, to be honest, I don't really, I, I know, but I don't know hands-on, right? So I'm a hands-on manager and hands-on owner. 
Um, but to, it just depends on the age of the home, right? So like if it's from the 60s or 50s, the toilets are kind of weird. Um, and the electrical, it can use that old uh, metal wiring and sometimes it's even tube and knob and it's uh, not so much tube and knob, but the wiring can be just terrible. And you can run $2,000 real quick and rewiring a mobile home because they start a lot of fires, the old, the old wiring does. Um, so I mean, it's, it's, there's specialized parts stores, right? There's mobile home suppliers and hardware stores. But a lot of times we get a lot of our materials from Menards and Lowe's, believe it or not. So because we, we want to upgrade it, to make it look more um, appealing to, to, the, to the, the resident, the future resident, right? So we, we want um, maybe not stainless steel products, but we want, you know, nicer appliances if we supply them. Um, you know, it's still a central AC and heat. You know, you still got a furnace, you still got a water heater. Um, it's all the same materials there. Um, sometimes if there's drywall, you know, you're using the same stuff. I mean, it, it's, you're using the same nails. So it's, it's honestly, um, aside from knowing where it goes, I mean, it's, it's, and it, the age is really dependent and that kind of determines how you turn it. But, um, the main, that's the main difference I would say, right? So there's some certain things with certain mobile home, the paneling, if you've never seen it, um, which I'm, a lot of people probably haven't. Um, if you've never been in an older mobile home, it's like a, it's not as thick as drywall. You just like buy it and then you, you nail it to, a, uh, normally it's a stud or um, sometimes they make, sometimes you just nail it on top of each other. It's pretty flimsy, to believe it or not. Um, and then you see these little like things that cover up the nails. But, you know, we, we use laminate flooring, linoleum. We've used, you know, in some mobile homes we've used, I have not used hardwood, but, you know, depending on your, your end client, um, you know, most of our sales are between five and $20,000. So on the lower end, um, but we just brought, we just, we buy, we do buy new mobile homes and, and they still use the same product or same material that they used 15, 20 years ago. That's what I was worried about. That's kind of an average um, acquisition cost for a new, like a middle of the road, new home. Depends on where you are, right? So highly market driven because the supply and demand and the, the overall affordable housing is, is, is so in Ohio, like a used mobile home that's 1995 or newer because we want peak roofs, shingled. Um, we'll actually throw like vinyl siding on it to make it look better um, if it's metal on metal. Um, traditionally, if we're if you don't have to fix it up in Ohio, normally we're paying somewhere between like nine thousand and fifteen thousand. Down here, if you're in Charleston that's cheap. So if they're normally what 15 to 35,000 for a decent used mobile home, I think, and, and people pay cash for them. There, there are third party financing options for people. Um, it just depends on where you are. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, Ryan, you've been doing this over five years. It's been kind of like your, your baby for a while. What, what are some tricks of the trade that you've learned over the time, uh, over the time of doing this or some advice you can give to people? Um, some tricks of the trade that I've learned is really if you're buying a turnaround park, you have to understand that it's even though people preach, you know, buy a mobile home park, it's a parking lot with utilities and, you know, it's, it's the most passive asset class out there. It, yes, it is when you get it stabilized and you get, you know, all lot renters and uh, it's just easy. Um, but on turnarounds, right, with you have bad tenants, you got utilities, you got to fix, you got all kinds of different things. It's hands-on. I mean, it's not a, um, that's what I've learned. Don't be afraid to be hands-on, right? And, um, you know, you just got to know what your, what your exit is on the back end, right? It's just like any asset class. What's the end of the end of the story, right? Is it, I'm buying this for a lifetime cash flow play or am I buying it to replace my W2 job, but I'm buying myself another job, which I'm okay with. But, um, you know, you just got to understand, um, you know, the dynamics, you also really have to do your due diligence. I mean, that's, that's the number one thing where people mess up, right? They just think eh, it's a mobile home park, you know, what, what could go wrong? Um, I would say under, get some education, pay for it. Don't be afraid to pay for it. There's a very, very cheap, affordable options out there. That's probably the biggest trick of the trade that um, I would say is self-education and pay for education. Um, because if you don't know what you're getting into, it's a different beast than single families, than um, apartments. They're just, they're different residents. They're, everything's different. There's a lot more private utilities in this industry than there are with, um, 
you know, so those, that's a long-winded answer of tricks of the trade. But my number one thing was, is assume you're going to have to be hands-on if you're buying a turnaround and self-education and don't be afraid to just jump in. I mean, smaller is not always better, but smaller is a, is a way to get your feet wet. Um, and just understand what you're buying. I mean, there's, there's, you don't have to, like, nobody's holding a gun to your head to, to buy a property, um, you know, and just understand what you're getting into. So. Now, speaking of which, kind of part of your due diligence, do you treat it like land to the point you get um, surveys and environmental studies done? Traditionally, yeah. We'll always do a phase one environmental study. Okay. Um, just to understand what's going on. Um, surveys, no, I don't always get those. I mean, unless the bank, normally it's a bank requirement, right? So a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is a, is a bank requirement. It's not my requirement. It's, it's the bank drives these decisions, right? They want you to get a survey appraisal phase one. They want you to, um, you know, only have lot renters. They don't want park owned homes and they, they want it to be to cover their debt coverage ratio. I mean, it's, it all drives from the debt side of things. So, but yes, I will always treat it like a land buy, right? So I'm, I'm checking out the infrastructure, the utilities, right? I'm hiring the, the professionals. It costs on average, if you're getting bank debt, true due diligence on a 50 space park will probably cost you five to $8,000. So that's lost money, right? If you don't do the deal and you, you kill it before you get your appraisal and survey, you're probably, if you got a phase one, you're probably out you know, maybe $3,500 if you're really good, if you don't hire a plumber, but costs go up with private utilities, right? So, I mean, it's, you have to pay to play the game, unfortunately. And, and while a lot of people talk about zero down and, and mobile home parks are, you can get in for no money. I've done it, but I have a, it's, it's been a while. Like I have, you know, I've, I've it's a, it's a good business to be in, but um, you definitely have to have some capital, whether it's you or investors, to play the game. Yeah, I think, I think the um, phase one is like kind of a light environmental um, study. Uh, it's the same with like apartments and things like that. We see them here a lot. If you're close to certain commercial businesses, the bank wants to make sure that there's no like soil contamination. There's no like heavy metals and stuff like that. And those can be really expensive. Yeah, so phase one's on average. The guy we use, we just, we like him. Um, so we're loyal to him. He charges maximum of like $2,500. So we don't do that right like day one, right? We normally take, depending on our due diligence time frame, um, five, 30 days, yeah, I'm probably going to kick it off in the first week. But there's been situations where he's called me and been like, hey, I wouldn't buy this thing if you were my brother. So, and yeah, I mean, it costs money to, to, to do it. And there's also like um, the phase one report is, is not a, it's basically issuing the property a clean bill of health or not. It's kind of like going to the doctor, right? You might have high blood pressure um, or you might have a, a bad eyes or something. You, you properties always come with damages or whatever you want to call it, right? They always have a health problem, but you know, you want that environmental guy to sign off and say, yes, it's clean. Um, we've, we've gone into phase twos and I won't go into that and we've done them before. Those are definitely more costly, but you know, you can still buy a property even if you have a bad phase one. So if you can like, if it's not too bad, you can take a corrective measure and you can get around mm -hmm. that. But Correct. I saw too a moment ago, um, we're not affiliated with these guys or anything, but I saw your book for mobile home university. Um, and I think that's kind of when you're saying like paying for, education i think that's one of the really big ones right that's a good place to start to to get educated on this yeah stuff. yeah that's where i started um frank and dave uh it's mobile home university they have a boot camp um it that was five years ago i, went. I think it was like two thousand bucks or something but it it's been um you know there it's it's just a it's a start it's a step in the right direction right it's it's a three-day boot camp. There's not many in the industry, so if I were to go to one, that's probably the one I would go to. One for the networking, two for just the like drinking from a fire hose type of education, because if you've ever been to a three-day seminar, you retain like 5%. But they give you all the materials to go home with, so that's really where you get your education is, is on, the, is on the, like, the studying of it and just continual education. So just like getting a deal done, it's really done in the follow-up, not the mm -hmm. first year. First, two thousand is cheap for that kind yeah. of higher education. Yeah, it is right. So, like apartment guys, single family guys, it's really cheap. I mean, and they give you a ton of stuff. 
regardless if it's if it's correct or not or it doesn't fit your lifestyle or maybe some of it's outdated or whatever you want to have talk about but um it still gets you a starting point and that's where a lot of people i think um they're like eh, i'll just learn with hands-on or school of hard knocks and then they buy a property and it's it's got a tear it's got a failed phase one because it's a old landfill with 10 10 you know oil tanks in the ground and you're never selling that property to to the professional investor, right? Like me. I mean, I'm not even like the, I don't have a fund or anything, but like I'm doing all the things that those guys are doing. So yeah, I'm not going to buy that property. So I would say self-education is probably the number one thing. And yeah, mobile home university, there's other courses out there, but yeah, it could be 10, 15 grand. And I probably would have still, I probably would have paid it. But um, so. well, I was going to say, um, especially over the last few months, but just in general collections, um, how are they usually, how have they been affected over the past few months? And then on top of that, if you have collection issues, how is the eviction process? Um, obviously I know it depends on if they own the home or not, but how, how is that process any different from like an apartment? Yeah. So, uh, collections traditionally, um, it depends on the stage of where we are with, um, cause we primarily buy turnaround assets, value add assets, um, or distressed. Um, once we get them up and running, normally they're by the rents due on the first, late on the sixth. Um, by the sixth, we're normally around 85, 90%, I would say collectively across the portfolio. Um, you know, those percentages vary because, right, you know, we might have a 25 space park and if two people miss payments, it's a higher percentage. So it's a, it's a, it's a fluctuating number. I would say normally we're less than, less than five or seven people that haven't paid in full by, by, by each property. So that if it's a hundred space park, we might have five people that haven't paid, but that's, it, it's very dependent on the area too. So collections traditionally are always good. We normally collect by the end of the month. We always have one or two bad apples, but that's just how it goes. Um, collections during these past few months surprisingly have not been, they've actually been better because our, our residents are are traditionally on social security on fixed incomes with disability right or they're retired um, they're their families right that work in fast food they work in jobs where maybe they got laid off so they're getting unemployment and a lot of them qualified for um, the whatever the stimulus the is it the I don't know what they're calling it but the twelve hundred dollars right and then if you have kids you get what five hundred dollars per kid and then if it's it's a, if you're married, you get what, 2,400 bucks. So some, some of our residents made more than they ever did in a month. So we actually, um, to be honest, haven't really skipped a beat. Um, and that's good. I mean, it's, it doesn't mean we're not recession resistant or we're not recession um, proof, but our asset class is a little bit more insulated than others because our residents are, are working jobs that are are always essential i guess if that makes sense or if they lose their job um you know they get unemployment or they qualify for other stuff so because because a lot of them they're low income so social security is always going to pay until that thing goes bust but that's a long way away and um they're on disability so that always pays so and plus the lot rent is really affordable right so if they own their own home the max we charge in some of our communities are four hundred dollars and that's <laughs> You, you can go beg on the street for $400, right? Or, or you go to church. If you go to a church, hey, so-and-so can't afford a rent this month, can somebody give 200 bucks? You know, right? A lot of people, it's 10 bucks, 10 bucks, takes 20 people to make 200 bucks. So a lot of our residents go that way sometimes. If they, there's definitely programs out there. So, And then as far as evictions go, under normal circumstances where there's not, um, where the courts are open, um, it's depending on where you are, you know, we pay, we do a three day or 10 day notice. We then, um, they have to pay in full or they sometimes will work with them. If it's their first time, we'll give them a payment plan option. Um, and then if they mess up or we don't allow balances to normally carry into the second or third month, um, once it gets above that five, $800 range, that's when we start filing for eviction. And we use an attorney in Ohio, um, but in South Carolina, it's relatively easy to evict, right? 45 bucks, my manager can go handle it and, and they're out of there. If they own their own home, it's a little different than process than a rental. So it's the same process if, you, if it's a rental um, or if they don't own the home as it is a single family rental or an apartment. You file for eviction, they whatever have what 30 days, you, if, they, if you win, they have 10 days to vacate or whatever term where you are. 
Um, if they own the home, it's a little different of a process. Um, normally, the, if we win, they have like 30 or 60 days to move the home. And a lot of times, like I've said, you know, they can't afford to move it. So what we end up doing is we, we just say, hey, can you sign the title over to us? Or we try to settle before anything. Can you sign the title over to us? We'll give you half your keys type of thing. We do that a lot. Um, but, you know, we, we get the homes back. That's just part of the business. And then we try to get the title as much as possible. But um, it's, a, it's a little different filing, but it just depends on what state you're in because it does vary by state. I'm glad you touched on that because um, that that's one of the really interesting nuances and stuff like that. You can be really creative with these parks. Like if, if they own the home, obviously you evict, you could end up owning the home. And yeah, you, you, can, you know, you could turn around and lease option that back out to somebody. I mean, it's, it's really cool that you're able to do um, all that kind of stuff. And then you did touch on another question we had, which is management. Um, like you said, you're pretty hands off. So I assume you've got management in all these different areas, is that correct? Yeah, so I actually am pretty hands-on. So, um, but uh, yeah, so we have on-site managers at all of the parks. They either live there or they live relatively close. And since most of our parks are uh, lot runners and that's the end goal, the busiest time for them is normally the the first through the 10th. And then after that, it's, it's pretty quiet um you know unless they got to go to court cases and stuff like that but i'm in contact with most of my managers via text via like some project management tools or just a phone call normally once a day you know hey what's going on and it could just be as simple as nothing right or so and so can you go talk to them they're they're trying to pay or some stuff so um yeah we have on-site management we normally give them uh, as far as payment goes um you know normally free living and um it depends on the community. It depends on if they're handy. Um, we may pay them like somewhere between like ten and twenty dollars an occupied lot. So it's it's not much, right? But the free the free lot rent and free utilities goes a long way. When people don't have to pay their rent, I mean, it's a it's a burden because normally it's the most expensive item. So they're 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 okay taking maybe a little bit less of a pay scale. Um, also. Um, they are normally retired or have another job. We don't like somebody to normally just be a full-time manager. Um, we, we prefer them to have other sources of income because therefore it, it you know, it offsets their expenses by just having um, just living expenses. And the on-site management is they're not doing, like we don't actually allow anybody to collect rent. So they're not even collecting rent. They're mainly just my eyes and ears dealing with residents, maybe, maybe making sure things get done posting like violation notices and just making the park um, clean and making sure people pay. They might represent us in court sometimes. Um, they might cut the grass. They might do some rehabs. They might plow the snow, which depends on the community. And um, that's, yeah, I mean, we're normally looking for somebody that uh, is very personable, not, um, you know, not quick to get angry because in this business, a lot of times you have to have some thicker skin. And I always tell my managers, um, we always have the last say, regardless of what they say to you. We as the landlord always have the last day to say because we're in, you know, landlord friendly states. I don't buy in tenant friendly where it takes that a year to evict somebody. We're in and out normally 60 days or less. So um, we always have the last say and, you know, you just let them get it off their chest and maybe reason with them later. So that's, that's a lot of the business. And um, I mean, a lot of times we look for, I'm not going to probably hire a 20 year old to be my manager. Um, we're looking for somebody that's worked for a living, right? They've been out in the world, they're experienced. Um, they don't have to have experience in property management. That's not a necessity, but just dealing with people and dealing with different um, backgrounds, you know, and being able to talk is a, is a, is a, is a skill that, um, is a lot. And, and, uh, and my, myself, I'm hands-on. So I play a lot of other roles off the asset right um and a lot of times we're they're lower income jobs right so you the skill set that you're going to get is not going to be like a, a six-figure skill set so you just have to keep that in mind when you're hiring a manager as well that's awesome man. well i think we're going to probably start lot, yeah i want to do this one last question because i think this is important for people and uh you could I know we're going to start to wind down after this one but this is a good one is what are your typical expenses in a mobile home park and then 
Um, what most people look for in investments, value add. What have you done kind of to help add some value? Yeah, so um, traditionally mobile home parks, if uh, the residents pay their utilities and it's over a 40 site park and the lot rents over 250, the expenses will be traditionally somewhere between 30 and 40% if the residents pay and it's all lot renters. Um, this is this is just all lot renters. And then if, if we pay utilities or um, if it's private utilities, we normally budget for 45% expense ratio or, or 55%. It just depends on the utilities. It, the, you, there used to be an old motto that, you know, hey, it's 30% or 40% expense ratio. That's kind of an old school mentality. It, it, it definitely is um, 35 or 45%. Now, there are certain scenarios where you could get a 25% expense ratio, but that's really rare. Um, and it's got to be like the county owns all the roads, you know, they own all the utilities and it's just lot renters and lot rents 400 bucks. So, but in our parks, we're normally between 35-ish to 45% expense ratio. Um, as far as value add stuff that we do going in day one, um, some, if the roads are really bad, it's a, it's a, it's an item that a lot of people just like to complain about, but there's no real ROI on it, right? Except for my points. You don't actually get anything on your net operating income. So we'll try to fix the roads. Um, if there's infrastructure issues, we'll fix that. If there's, um, we will, the easy things, right, are raising, raising rent, um, building back water and sewer, so installing submeters. Um, if they're not being read, we'll start reading them, building back for that. If there's an opportunity to build back for trash, we'll, back, we'll build back for trash. Um, we make tenants cut their own grass. It's just like a subdivision. We want it like a subdivision, right? You own that home, so you cut your grass, you pay your own utilities, you take care of your house. Um, we start to, those are just easy things, right? You know, there's not a lot of, nothing more than a notice um, and just some billing. Um, some, some larger items where we'll go in, fix the roads, like I said, um, some heavier capital expenditure stuff is we, we fill lots by filling, um, bringing in homes. We normally buy the homes and, and rehab them, set them and sell them. So we do that. Um, any park owned homes or any vacant homes that need rehab, we'll do that as well. Um, but the first item, is normally raising rent or uh, you know um, submetering, but we're not raising it 50 bucks. We might raise it 20 and then bill back or just bill back. But at the same time, we're making the large park look pretty, right? We're installing new signs. We might be fixing street lights. We're fixing the utilities. We're we're making it look good. So therefore, the resident, you know, they feel like like hey, I want to live here. You know, the owner's putting a lot of money into it. It's a good place to live. Um, and then we're evicting people too that you know, maybe don't. That's good to know. I got a real quick question. I'm from West Virginia. So I'm just curious, like what area your parks are in up there? Well, I don't own anything yet there, but okay. um, we're, we're closing a deal next week in outside of Morgantown. Okay. Cool. So West Virginia. Yeah. My family's, my grandma's from there as well. And in the state it's, we're looking for economic drivers, right? So West Virginia university is there, big hospitals, um, you know, big employers. There's a Walmart super center there. And there's decent employment. That's probably a good town to invest in. Cool. Yeah. And there's plenty of WalMarts up there. Old Motown is an interesting spot too. Um, yeah. Cool, man. Well, we're gonna start winding down um, a little bit. We got a couple personal questions for you. Um, Dan, you want to hit a couple personal questions real quick? Yeah. Mindset. What 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 drives you? We like really seeing this question for all our guests. Like, what what gets you up in the morning? Gets you fired up? First off, my alarm or my girlfriend gets me up in the morning, <laughs> but um, to say I'm like a 5.30 guy and I always have been, no, I'm not a morning person. We started this at 9 a.m. and to be honest, I woke up at 8. So I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not a morning person. I never have been. Um, but what really gets me out of bed in the morning is just making a difference. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, I eventually, you know, it, well, obviously it's, everybody gets into real estate for financial freedom, right? You're trying to achieve that, trying to do that. Aside from that, and just kind of creating a, um, you know, long-term wealthy, wealthy family for myself. Like I don't have kids, I'm not married, so I want that ahead of time. So that's probably driven me a little bit more, right? I want to be able to control my time. That's the biggest thing for me, um, because I've sat at a desk and I've done a corporate job, and I can remember days where I like would just sit there and like my soul, like if you believe in that stuff, was just like dying inside. I felt like I was dying. So like now, you know, I could work a 12 hour day and I don't feel like I'm really working. So aside from the financial freedom thing, I'm really, I enjoy educating others and talking about the business. 
Um, and I enjoy just kind of taking pro bono time and, and helping people out. That's probably the biggest um, thing that I've learned in this business as well. Um, you know, obviously financial and money drives me. That's probably the, my number one that gets me out of bed, to be frank. So that's, that's why I got into real estate um, because there's a lot more opportunities than that's awesome. Man. Yeah. And I'm like, um, we're about to get our REI central stuff back together. I don't know if you've come to those yet. That's, um, kind of a, a RIA that we do. It's like a light RIA. Um, and we're trying to have people talk for a few minutes about whatever their niche is. So I'll, I'll get in touch with you pretty soon. If you want to come in and do like 15 minutes on parks. Yes. Yeah, I think I've been to all the in-person ones. Okay, cool. That's awesome, man. Yeah. We're, we're hoping July to get back together. I got to call our new venue after this and get it lined up. So I think July will be back. On that, on that one. Um, and then another question, um, is there a recent book or podcast or anything that you've read or listened to that's kind of helped you out, you've gained something from? Yeah, recently, um, it's called Real Estate Titans. I can't remember the, who the author is, but if you just Google it or go on Audible or Amazon, you can find it. It's, it's like Ferris, a, isn't it? No. He has Tools of Titans. Tools of Titans, sorry, yeah, sorry. Real Estate Titans is a, uh, it's, it's, it's a book about um, like just how big, big, like big businesses have been built from real estate, what they look for, what are correlated. And some, some things that I've learned from that um, is just, you know, recessions normally last two to three years. Um, don't over leverage, you know, the property and kind of stick to, stick to your niche is kind of the, is, is the, is what I've learned from that. And, you know, also another book that's, that's been, that I recently learned to just given the COVID thing was the, was a recommendation from Warren Buffett. It was called the great crash in 1929. Um, it was a, I mean, it's a dry book. I'm, I have a financial background and that kind of, I have an interest in those type of things. Um, and then all the, you know, traditional books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, any of his books is to change your mindset into, into all that kind of things. But recently those, those, those are good. And then I also just like on the side, I also kind of, if, if Elon Musk is on Joe Rogan's podcast, I will listen to that. I'm not a big, I don't listen to Joe Rogan every week, but I do listen to him. And, and then there's some mobile home park specific podcasts that I listen to as well, but um, nothing, nothing like super life-changing if, if you're, if you're not in the business. So. What about, uh, what about things you do for fun? Um, I like to buy mobile home parks. So that's what <laughs> I like to do for fun. No, I'm, uh, I like to go, you know, fishing, I like to go to like different breweries. Um, like to be outdoors, hiking, hunting, um, type of stuff. Um, reading. Um, yeah, that's, I, you know, when I lived in Ohio, we would go, well, we'd go out west once a year. I like to snowboard and, and you know, wakeboard and stuff like that as well. But I'm not as um, – back in my old days, I used to, like, play baseball, but I don't do that anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming. Um, we'll wrap up here in a minute. You're welcome to hang out with us. But um, people can find you. You have a website, right, themobilehomeparkinvestor.com? Correct. And they, you can also email me. Um, I don't know if you have show notes or anything, but um, you can email me at ryan.gro. E-N-E-5-5 at gmail.com. And I think, that, I believe that's on my website. If not, you can find me on, on all social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm not on Twitter or Snapchat, but um, you can find me on all those. Any TikTok in there? No, I, I don't, I should. Maybe I'll be the first mobile home park TikToker. Uh, <laughs> there's, definitely, there's definitely some stories, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, buddy. Thank you so much for coming, man. This was a really good one. Um, I think you got a really cool approach to it. And I, I know I learned a lot. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'll go over our last couple of little things. Our uh, investing tip, I think this is really important, is when you're starting off investing, um, we always talk about teams and who you put together. I also would go a step further. I've been talking to a lot of people who um, have kind of gotten burnt because they didn't go this route, is make sure the person you're putting on your team understands investing to either it'd be great if they invest themselves, but at least have a lot of investing background, such as like your accountant, your realtor. These things are really important because they're going to look at something. They're going to look at your property or investment the same way you do. If you just use a general accountant, general realtor, they may not speak the language, understand the analysis part of it, understand cap rates, understand, um, you know, your cash on cash return or what your goals are. And that's, I, I just think that's really important. 
And I think that's great that um, I know um, Troy put on Maven recently, all the cal- a lot of calculators there. And we did that to try to help our clients be able to analyze deals easier, yeah. make it a little bit more efficient. Yeah, totally. And it's so market specific too. So like, you know, you can Google, how do I calculate cap rate? But it, you know, those things, you're gonna have a different like average in each market. So make sure that your agent or accountant, lender, whomever, understand sort of like your market specific averages and things like that too. So that's a really good one. I just think it's a good uh, good point there. And then um, as far as things going around downtown, we know things are starting to open up, but really you no know, festivals or any really entertainment, but I just stress again, support local. Cool. That's awesome, man. So the only housekeeping really I've got to add um, is REI Central will be back in person um, in July. So I've gotten our new venue uh, figured out. Our previous venue, I think most of y'all will know this, they're, they're changing their sort of approach with that venue. Um, they're not going to do private meetings anymore with that, which is fine. Um, so we've got another city-owned venue. I think it's, it's going to be the Felix Davis building, which is the one in the middle of Park Circle. Um, I know the folks that operate that one pretty well from the neighborhood meetings. So we're actually getting a really good deal on a much bigger space. So it'll help us when we break into our groups. Um, So keep an eye out for that stuff. I'm going out of town this week, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time like redoing the events and all that stuff. So um, that'll be back. The the cost won't change for anybody, which will be good. I'm trying to keep that thing as affordable as possible. We obviously don't make any money off of that. But, um, you know, we just want it to at least eat itself so we don't have to fork a bunch of money into it. But um, Keep an eye out for that, and um, that's all, man. We're uh, we're gonna have to figure out a, a, an episode to end our first season on. Yeah, twenty one and season one, I guess. So um, that's exciting. Ryan, thanks again for coming, man. Um, we will definitely be in touch with you, and um, I'll get this thing uploaded and shared hopefully this evening sometime. Appreciate it. Awesome, everyone. Have a great week. Thanks, buddy. Thanks again for listening to the REI Central podcast presented by Maven Realty. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to us. You can find us online at www.mavenrealtysc.com. We also hope to see you at our next REI Central meetup. More information on dates and tickets can be found at www.rei-central.com. Have a great day.